Welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Brian Morrissey. Um, today I'm joined by Jeff Scheller. Jeff is the newly minted CRO at Group 9. Um, Jeff came over from the Pop Sugar acquisition, which just closed a couple weeks ago. A couple right? weeks ago. Okay, so look, you were part of Pop Sugar for a while as, as an independent entity. Um, as a partner, like what 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 is the potential that you see, you know, joining forces with Group Nine and and its portfolio of brands? So it's really interesting. The marriage is such a perfect marriage at a molecular level because the brands, Pop Sugar, Seeker, Dodo, Now This, Thrillist, they all have a common theme: very optimistic, very positive, and that's a through line. And so I think just generally speaking, that helps from a monetization perspective. When we go out to market and we say, look, our company's bound by optimism, you can kind of think through how one plus one can equal Mm -hmm. three. So I think on a foundational level, the editorial alignment of saying Thrillist just wants to help you kind of experience the unexpected whether it's from food, drink, or travel, or Pop Sugar wants to help you as a female kind of just explore all the areas that um, define you versus just being yeah. relegated to one bucket. Well, it's a lot of lifestyle, but then you got now this, but now this is a little bit of the outlier, right? Uh, to some extent. I mean, the way that I think about now this is, yes, it is news, and um, news is, is kind of core to what it started as a couple of years ago, but I think as a brand, it really reflects the currency in terms of what young people care about, which is issues. And so it's it's the lens in which they consume it is news, but it's really more so for young people, issues, climate change, equality, et cetera. Those are really what define now this. And you could argue, certainly they're potentially depressing stories that are out there, but the lens that- There are a lot of depressing yeah, stories out there. I try to be an optimist, but <laughs> the, the lens that now this um, uh, kind of, kind of, takes through uh, these these complex issues is to really be positive and hopeful. And so it is the most utility-driven versus being lifestyle-driven, but right. it's also, again, that positive through-line kind of makes it easy for us as we think about the future and monetization. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're recording this before the holiday break, and then um, you will be heading off immediately to, to CES, which I will not be at. On the G9. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck with that. Um, but you'll be meeting with lots of different marketers and stuff like this, and this maybe it'll be the first time since the, the merger went, went through. Um, what, what's your like, sort of top-line message for why they should care? Why is this like, a good thing for your partners? So I could answer that through two lenses. One is more from the kind of larger macro conversation that's going on, and yep. the other would be more from a client-facing perspective. Macro-wise, merger mania, whatever we called it, a lot of these companies got together out of necessity, out of survival. And mm-hmm. Pop Sugar and Group 9 got together because it made sense, because it was organic. Oh, God, I thought you were going to say that they got together for, for su- survival. No, no. Shit. No, we, yeah. <laughs> we, it was not under duress. You had our chief EBITDA officer, Brian Sugar. Yes, I did. Uh, and the profitable Pop Sugar uh, kind of playbook. And you had Group 9, the dominant stake in in reaching young people, dominant stake in social video. Everything came together from a complementary perspective, including Brian and Ben, who have known each other for a long time, uh, but really through even mm-hmm. down to what they're passionate about. You know, it, it, it's all super complementary. So I think that on the macro level, we're an outlier because we're, like I said, we'll be a case study for 
success in terms of merger mania, but also because it wasn't done okay. in a state of duress. Okay. <laughs> Are you talking about refinery? I'm not talking right, about anyone. whatever. Okay. Uh, He's so, talking about refinery. Uh, I'm not talking about anyone in particular. <laughs> Go on. On the client-facing side, in terms of value, so you have this really big list of, of consolidated media companies, the Voxes, the old school ones, the Condes, the Hearst, the Merediths, the Vices, the Bustle Digital Groups. For us, when we talk about young people, it's number one, we reach them at scale. And number two, they spend more time with us than anyone else in the entire competitive set. And so that is third-party syndicated. That's not our yeah. made-up, proprietary, whatever. That's Comscore in terms of actual time spent. And attention for us is that core currency from you know what we think the future mm-hmm. cohorts in Gen Y, Gen Z trade on. It's you know. I want to be captivated by something, and we captivate them more than anyone else yeah. in the competitive set. So I want to push on the scale thing for a little bit. Why, why is scale still pretty important? Because a lot of people, you know, have come on this podcast and sort of been like, scale's dead, scale's dead, and, like, not really. I mean, scale drives a lot of this. I mean, from what you're talking about, um, you know, adding together um, all these different brands, um, you're going to have a single sales force, right? I'm, Absolutely. Single tech stack, single, all these sort of things. There's a bunch of efficiencies, I'm sure, that come out. Like, you know, everyone when they announce these mergers try not to talk about those. But like, there, it is more efficient. But there's a lot of like advantages um, to having a bunch of brands under one roof. So I think that nothing's ever truly, really new. And so you look at the magazine companies, their portfolio of brands, they have the same shared services model, one printing press, one back office. There's now, a reason. I mean, Condé's still trying to get there. For but. sure. But other other brands, the Hearst, the Meredith, like yeah. those have been in existence for a really long time for a reason, because in order to scale, you need to have that back office support that isn't replicated across every single brand. So there's the economic scale, which is shared services, and then there's the audience scale, which is you have to be big enough to matter. Absolutely critical in a world where you have Facebook. It's the same narrative. Facebook and Google and Amazon and Target and Walmart, Media Group, all of those guys out there that are huge. Mm-hmm. Scale is, 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 is not, I, I guess the way that I frame it up, scale is, is no longer a lead statement. It's more of a checkbox. Right. And so... If you don't check that box, then you're going to be in trouble. And it's like anything. I mean, we keep talking about this in these these different podcasts. Is how the middle gets gets crunched, and it's easy to fall into to the middle. But I mean, I, I guess together you would think that you guys are are not in the middle. Like are are one of the scale players. Oh yeah, no, it's not even a thought. It's factual. We are number one overall in terms of time spent from a Comscore perspective. We're number one in terms of social. Uh, Nielsen, DCR, Comscore both say the same thing. So I think within our larger competitive set of all the brands that I mentioned, we are a clear leader. And that competitive set, you, you think it's not, it's not quote unquote just the 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 Voxes, um, the Bustles, but it's the the I'm going to do another quote unquote like the traditional like the Hearst, the Condes. Absolutely, that narrative of them being behind is, in my mind, a two-year-old narrative. And I'm not talking about restructuring. I'm talking more so about audiences. Yeah. They were behind. They looked at digital pure plays, copied their playbook, and I think I think they're yeah. pretty caught up. So yeah. we have to consider them uh, a credible 
threat to our business and to try to take whatever share they have that is legacy and bring it our way. Yeah. How about, I mean, you've been inside these organizations, right? So, I mean, you you know the differences. So when, you know, you were the CRO at um, Pop Sugar and then you became the CRO sort of Group 9. It's a broader portfolio. Um, how are you structuring the commercial side? Um, and, and how is it, is it a similar playbook or is it different playbook than like at like a Conde? Because there's a lot of different ways you can organize, the obviously, the, the business side. We're trying to keep it simple and solutions-oriented. So the prior organizational setup at Group 9 was through the lens of an agency-first assignment. If you're a salesperson, you have agency X, agency Y, agency Z. That's who you call on. If things shift out, shift in, whatever, that's what you focus on. But what Wait, that, agency holding group or specific agencies or both? Uh, both. Okay. Yeah. And... The Pop Sugar playbook was through the lens of vertical. So pets, finance, food, whatever, whatever, all the way through. What we found is we were able to get deeper with clients and do the, you know, traditional quote unquote adage of like fewer, bigger, better. But yeah. it really that playbook works. And so when we think about how that scales across group nine, it works even better because now you have five brands to play with. You can go even deeper. So if you're on the retail but team. is it by the brand level or is it category? No, like, it's, so ca- it's vertical category. So what are the categories? Uh, retail, beauty, finance, uh, in pharma, uh, auto, QSR, media. Slash okay, so you're aligning around the category, not, industry categories, not your categories right. of your brands, but the industries. Absolutely, everything. Explain we the do. advantage of doing that because I, I feel like this is now like a fairly more common approach than do it by brand. So you have to make sure that you don't lose the brand essence. And I think this has been a struggle, particularly for traditional magazine media companies. And that's why you've seen the ping pong back and forth at the Condes and whatever in terms of we don't want to lose brand love. We want that to carry through. Our structure is set up so that doesn't happen. We have brand marketers that are basically responsible for taking what they get from each individual brand, which has a brand president and uh, chief content officer, and distilling that down for the marketplace yeah. for our salespeople. Yeah, you don't want it like a, a, a Group 9 portal. Right, exactly. That, I hope that's not the strategy, <laughs> is it, Jeff? I, you know what? <laughs> Wait and see. We're going to build a portal. Wait and see. Okay, so you're going to go, like, how much does that require change on the sales, sales force level? I mean, because we have a lot of people, we, we, we talk about things like sort of in the abstract, but, you know, the, the execution of these things is really difficult. It's a little bit of upfront work in terms of thinking about you have these categories, what are our priority categories? The way that we're thinking about it is we look at it on the spectrum of there's vertical category A all the way through to Z, but which ones are going to be endemic to which one of our brands and which ones are going to be non-endemic that can be all boats rising across the portfolio. So for example, you have retail and retail will be a an endemic category to pop sugar for obvious reasons. And as we think about how that can scale across the portfolio, it'll be a non-endemic for like a now this. So as now this continues to rally around core issues for young people, we might be able to go into retail brand X and say, hey, we would love to do something about corporate social responsibility. We would love to tell a story that is more meaningful about who you are or your business evolution. So we would classify that as non-endemic revenue because mm-hmm. 
obviously, that's not the bread and butter of what now this represents. So I think just broad strokes, the, what our first articulation to the, to the team was in terms of what they should be thinking about is this endemic versus non-endemic approach. That was number one. Number two is it's if you're reorienting from agency where you have to be a jack of all trades to vertical and you're by necessity becoming an expert, then you have to really understand your client. So I think nuanced, but nothing crazy where we had to have intensive conversations and training sessions. It was really like, Mm -hmm. here's the considerations in terms of shifting from agency to vertical. Here's your mission. We want you to really understand your client needs, what they want, what they don't want, what's driving them, what are the market forces, and then come up with a plan that is super simple and solves a problem that they have. Yeah. So this is still mostly an advertising business, yeah? It's well diversified. <laughs> but, I mean, it's, it's, it's a mostly an advertising business. Well, as, business. I, as you know, because we've talked about it in the past. I don't mean this in a bad way. No, no, no. Uh, my voice got really high there. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, so we have a long heritage on the pop sugar side from a content commerce perspective. So affiliate business, uh, the clothing line. Yeah. Um, beauty, et cetera, all those things. And so that's one of the... Okay, on the Group 9 side, I thought of, at least until a couple years ago, I thought of Group 9 as exclusively advertising-driven businesses. There's nothing wrong with that. No, for sure. But uh, for the last however many years, there's been Hotel Thrillist. There's been a variety of experiential opportunities that are consumer-facing. So yes, at this point, media is still the lion's share, but we are... But how important is it, I guess, for a business like this? Because um, a lot of the brands are lifestyle brands. And even now, this it doesn't really lend itself to the um, subscriptions. Um, there are a lot of experiential um, opportunities. And also just sort of franchise opportunities, IP. You know, obviously, the Dodo is doing a lot along there. But, like, how do you look at diversification, because it's, I think it's different than like a, a straight news publisher when they think about diversification. It's a great question. I think specifically by category, it's going to drive a different point of view. So to your point with the Dodo and pets, there's going to be a ton we can do from an IP perspective, content-wise, product-wise, event-wise, et cetera. Some of the brands may not lend themselves to diversification that checks every single box. But we do think, for example, with now this, that there's room for a dominant youth-oriented news brand to create live event experiences that rival the time 100s of the world that are really focused on an older consumer. So uh, we think that there's diversification opportunities across the portfolio. It's really what are the what are, what can we credibly do? What does the audience want? And then what's monetizable versus a super heavy lift that might sound good in theory, but then yeah. Are you thinking a lot more about franchises? It's something we hear a lot from people. How do you define a, a franchise? Well, you know, like you know, a complex comes up with um, you know first we feast and then um, and then hot ones and then it, it becomes a. Uh, hot sauce and there's an event and all this stuff like this. I mean, it's kind of, I don't know, I feel like everyone's trying to run some smaller version of the Disney playbook. Um, And why not? Yeah, why not? They're doing okay. Yeah, we think about that all the time. Uh, In particular, the Dodo has franchises that now exist on the Disney portfolio that have extensions into Scholastic for children, book fairs 
from back in the day, which I didn't. I'm glad they still exist. I had I had no clue. Is the bookmobile still around? Uh, I don't go that deep. <laughs> I love my kids, but uh, I don't. I don't know I the answer the to that question. Um, but uh, there's a ton of franchises that I think our proficiency on the video side, being number one in terms of social video views, uh, helps us to clear the path to be able to say this franchise has mm-hmm. legs. So we're looking at it as almost like a stack. So we have at the bottom editorial sponsorships, which may or may not lead into into kind of multiple IP, multiple revenue stream opportunities. Then we have franchises, which are not seasonal. Yeah. Uh, and then we have tentpoles. And tentpoles would be like the playgrounds of the world where we have playground merch that we sell, best dog day ever for the Dodo, et cetera. So when we look at that stack and then you kind of – have the intersection of that stack with each particular brand, and then finally what the marketplace wants. Okay. So it, tentpole is like the biggest, sort of the top. Yeah, that's um, the top of the heap. So explain the different tentpoles, and start with like, you know, the experience of Playground um, from uh, Pop Sugar. So Playground will be going into year three, June 14th, 13th and 14th, uh, New York City. And when we started it a couple of years ago, we wanted to achieve the goal of being the largest women's lifestyle festival. So we achieved that goal in year one, saw growth in year two. But really what we tapped into was the changing dynamic of retail. So you see at malls across America, there's 24-7 fitnesses that are opening up. There's minute clinics. There's this like convergence. And so we wanted to build that at playground. So we had different villages, sugar studios for fitness, we had a soul space, we had the main stage, we had a beauty carnival. And so it really did reflect like this two-day women's lifestyle festival that you could actually experience all facets of your life under one roof. And those are, the business model for that is, is a, it's mostly a sponsor model. Sponsorship will always, in my mind, be the majority of the revenue because with one sponsor coming in at a very high level, you can do what you would normally do in terms of consumer ticket revenue that could take weeks, months, et cetera. So, uh, it's more important for you to run a ton of people through this experience than to like, you know, try to get a, a certain number of people to pay fifty bucks each. I wouldn't say a ton because it has to be a community. That I think that's okay. also another core through line of Group Nine. We have this community that exists overall because each individual brand has its own community. We don't want to piss them off, and so with. Playground, no one waited online for more than a couple of minutes. We did post-event surveys. Everybody had a great time. The bigger we get, we would have to get a bigger space. We'd have to make sure that it was properly Mm -hmm. staffed. The customer experience is key. We just did in uh, a couple of weeks ago Sugar Chalet, which was kind of like the Opre Ski without the ski in Bryant Park. Same thing. Nobody waited online. (laughs) Opre Ski without the ski. Okay. I like that. Yeah. and But it was really... We want the experience that they walk away with to be one that they'll tell their friends, like, this was an amazing, amazing thing. And it builds credibility with us so that as we look to expand IP in the future, whether it is a sponsorship, a franchise, or a tentpole, becomes much easier because they know what to expect mm-hmm. from us uh, and they know the level of execution that we're going to bring to the table. So w- which of the sort of, I don't want to say legacy Group 9, but the, the old Group 9 brands, do you think that this sort of model can be applied to? I think all of them. You know, we have plans for second half in particular to do uh, some level of activations across Experiential the Experiential across all of them. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I- explain why that's 
such an attractive opportunity. I mean, there's there's benefits to you know being able to take a digital brand and show that you can like turn out a bunch of people like at once because um, this is you know there's a lot of disposability um, or disposable brands and digital. I think the reason why experiential has proliferated for as long as it has, because as you know, everything in our business is so cyclical. There's like 15 years ago, lead generation, blogs, email, this, that, whatever. And then it winds up coming back in vogue 10 years later. But I think experiential has proliferated because it's the unexpected. You're curating something that you're really good at for your consumers in real life and with Instagram and with Snap and TikTok, they need to create content. And so there's that mm-hmm. need that the consumer has to document their life. And then there's our need, which is to connect with our consumers in real life uh, and help. hopefully they become brand ambassadors yeah. and it drives more engagement back to the site and to the socials and all of that. So it's a virtuous circle of need from the consumer and the brand. Right. So final thing is around commerce. Um, talk about old things coming new again. Um, I, I think, you know, on the pop sugar side, I mean, you guys were uh, really into commerce. I mean, for, for a while you, you had a, a commerce half of the business uh, with shop style. Um, but you're, I, I think you've been probably doing more in commerce than a lot of the uh, Group 9 brands. What is the opportunity that that you see there with driving people down the funnel to actually make purchases, whether it's like, you know, your own products or whether it's more of an affiliate model or some kind of mix. It'll definitely be a mix of both. That pop sugar playbook is being deployed across the portfolio. So Thrillist with food, travel, and drink, there's amazing opportunities on the affiliate side, on the product development side for us to mine. Uh, A brand like Seeker that's about innovation, the pop sugar lens there can obviously be applied to amazing gadgets and um, new tips and tricks that would help drive purchase behavior. Uh, You have obviously the Dota, which is kind of super low-hanging fruit. Um, Now this... Can sell dogs. (laughs) (laughs) Is that legal? Uh, uh, I tried this with uh, Yi Jung and she didn't like the idea. (laughs) Whatever. Just just workshopping it. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um... (laughs) And then now this, they the different handles that they have from a social perspective. So there's now this her, there's now this nerd. There's a variety of lenses that we could apply on a subcategory level with now this to drive affiliate revenue, drive commerce. But I think, again, going back to experiential, you can actually blend the two together, create merch, yeah. sell it at event, create community behind that. And Complex is doing some of that right. with their launch of shop and obviously with ComplexCon, so, and then... But you don't want to have, like, warehouses? No. No. (laughs) No. good. So, final, final thing is, um, since this will be um, coming out at the beginning of the year, give me a bold call for 2020. It doesn't have to be, like, a specific prediction, and it can't be, like, a straw man sort of thing that nobody really believes is going to happen or everyone agrees. Um, So, it's, it's somewhere in between. So, bold call of some you know, big trend or something that is, is going to rise to the forefront in 2020? So I, I think that, and it's been talked about, so this shouldn't be a surprise, but I truly think that the retail companies that are setting up media businesses are going to significantly disrupt the ecosystem. So the Amazons, the Targets, the Walmart media groups, because they have full funnel. They yeah. have top of the funnel, bottom of the funnel. They have first-party purchase data. They have 
trackable. Yeah. They have everything that you could want. And so I think it'll be interesting to see the dynamic between them. And and it's not just Amazon. I think a lot of times people go to Amazon as the, the third leg, the Troika or whatever. But uh, Walmart's in this, Kroger's in this, like anyone who has commerce data is going to yeah, I think so. Going the it. banner headline would be like "Retail Strikes Back." Yeah, you know, it's like again, it's similar cyclical stuff like what you saw with traditional media versus pure play. Same thing. It's traditional retail, mm-hmm. Amazon next gen retail. Traditional catches up. Yeah, and I think also, I know at every single one of our different events, um, you know, we have these challenge boards, and like attribution is always the biggest like <laughs> uh, part of, and they own of it. all of them. Um, and they can go a long ways to solve it. Yeah, I'm, we're seeing really good results and really good feedback when we talk to clients through the lens of full funnel. But for us, obviously, that's more on the affiliate side and leveraging one of the big affiliate engines, Rakuten, et cetera. Uh, but to be able to have that conversation and own it straight out and own the ability to market it through your search results and through your branded pages is obviously... That's the, that's the goal. That's the holy grail of marketing. So I think it'll be a big point of conversation for marketers, for publishers, for trade to just kind of yeah. see where that lands and then how Facebook and Google and the more platform-based 800-pound gorillas react. Mm-hmm. All right, Jeff, thank you so much. Thank you, sir. And thank you all for joining us. Uh, if you like this podcast, hope you did. Uh, rate and review us on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks to Pierre Bienname who produced this.